Don't go settling for being just ordinary. That little faith you have has the potential to be big faith. It's 8066 or thereabouts. The worship of the Roman gods dominates the whole of life, home life, social life, work, politics, and the running of the state. You won't get anywhere if you don't take part. In any case, it's popular because it's a good excuse for a bit of debauchery. And morality, what's that? There is nowhere that a Christian can fit in. Nero is the emperor, crazy, wicked man, and he's well up for a bit of debauchery himself. His popularity is failing, and he's blaming the Christians for everything that's going wrong. And let's face it, they were an easy scapegoat. They're odd, they don't take part. They keep themselves to themselves, and it's even said that they eat human flesh and drink human blood when they get together in their secret meetings. So the Christians aren't a bit popular. Indeed, they're being persecuted in and around Rome. They're being rounded up, they're being thrown into stinking prisons, some of them are being crucified, some of them thrown to wild animals, some burned alive. Some of them made to fight gladiators, all just for entertainment. And news of this has spread to churches all across the empire. Persecution could soon be coming in the provinces. No, not easy times to be a follower of Christus as they were known. It's been about 30 years since Jesus went to heaven. To give you some perspective, that's maybe not quite as long as this church has been in existence, but nearly... So there are a lot of 25 to 30-year-old churches, and you know how it is when the older guys, the founder members, start getting on a bit. Second-generation Christians, their children come to the fore, and they never have quite the same age. They don't have the same fire in their bellies. Paul has completed his missionary journeys. Peter and the other apostles are all over 60 now. A new generation of teachers and leaders are establishing themselves, some of them good, some of them bad. They're always bad ones, telling people what they want to hear, leading them astray, discouraging them. So all in all, these are dangerous times for the church. Disliked, socially isolated, coping with opposition, settling into a way of going, losing their oomph. Some of them are getting weary and discouraged and saying things like, what happened to the Lord's return? You told us to expect it soon. So dangerous times and tempting times 
tempting to settle down into the routine, tempting to keep your head down and not rock the boat, tempting to go with the flow, tempting to give up, tempting to be taken in by those false teachers who are promising something new and different and exciting. Peter, Simon Peter, one of the original 12, he's old Peter now, but he's still an apostle, still a servant of Jesus, and he's still highly respected in all the churches. Peter knows the danger all too well because he was tempted when the going got tough and he had denied and turned his back on Jesus. But Jesus forgave him and told him to strengthen his brothers and that has been his thing for these past 30 years, strengthening the churches. And he knows that it's coming near the end of his time. So with all that in mind, Peter is sitting down to write a letter that is to be sent out to the churches. All the churches, at least as many as it can be distributed to. Well, where do you start when you're writing a letter like that? Of course, you've got to start with the usual greeting. Who it's from who it's for, and some kind of a wish or a prayer, an expression of a desire for good things to come their way. That was how it was always done in those days. So, hmm, Peter thinks, who can I say it's for? All the Christians everywhere. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, who it's from, to all the Christians everywhere, who it's for, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The wish, the prayer. But all Christians everywhere, Peter wasn't happy with that. I think he probably thought, I need to say a little bit more. I want to say something right at the start in the greeting that sets the tone for what's going to come in my letter. Hmm, what can I say? Verses 1 and 2 then. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Yeah, that's better. That gets the gist of what Peter wants to say in his letter. It's for everyone, he says, who has been given the same kind of faith as we have. Do you ever read stories about some of the great Christians of the past? Biographies, you should really. I wonder do you have any favourites? I'm going to tell you about some of mine. Story time. Billy Bray was born in Cornwall in 1794. He was an awful drunkard. His wife would send him out to bring in the coal and hours later she'd find him drunk in the pub. But the Lord saved him. And he, he was so happy that he couldn't stop shouting about it. He shouted about it so much that the other miners he worked with down the mines often complained. And he told them, if you put me in a barrel, I would shout glory through the bunghole. He was a poor man, 
But he set about building chapels in the villages around where he lived, places for people to come together to worship. And he trusted God to supply what he needed, and he just got on with it. One time, a chapel he was working on was nearly finished, but it still needed a pulpit, and he had no money left. But anyway, he saw a three-cornered cupboard in an auction, and he thought, yeah, I could make something of that. And he asked a man who was standing there what he thought the cupboard would sell for. Six shillings, the man said, and he gave Billy the six shillings to buy it. But somebody else bid seven shillings. Undaunted anyway, Billy prayed. It just so happened that the man loaded the cupboard on a cart and he took it in the very direction that Billy was going. The man got to his house and the cupboard wouldn't go through the door. So Billy, who was watching, said, I'll take that off your hands for six shillings. And the deal was done, and Billy said to the man, Bless the Lord, tis just like him. He knew I couldn't carry it myself, and he got you to carry it for me. It's just the way he went about the Lord's work, and he trusted the Lord to meet the needs. If he needed anything, he prayed. He never worried about anything. He trusted Jesus and he was happy. He said, my best friend is the dear Lord. He has made me glad. No one can make me sad. He has made me shout and no one can make me doubt. At the age of 74, he fell ill. The doctor was called. The doctor told him he was going to die and he said, glory be to God, doctor. Shall I tell him in heaven you'll be coming too? George Muller, similar kind of a story. He was born in 1805, and he was a wild lad when he was growing up as well, but God saved him. And he started taking some orphans into his home and caring for them, just trusting God to provide the extra costs that were needing to be covered. He never asked anyone for anything. He made that a point not to ask. He just prayed and he left it with the Lord to supply their needs. And every need was met. By the time of his death, his homes built in his home city of Bristol were caring for thousands of children. Those buildings actually are still standing today. They're not orphanages now. But the work still goes on in a different format and still following the same principle. It's a fascinating story. You should read the book. It's called Delighted in God. It's written by a man called Roger Steer. One morning, all the money had run out. There was no breakfast for the hundreds of children who were in his care at that time. So Muller had the children sit at the tables ready to eat. He told them they couldn't be late for school. And he led them in prayer and gave thanks for the breakfast they were about to have. And just as he finished praying, a knock came to the door. It was the baker. He said, Mr. Muller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt that you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and I brought it for you. And he had no sooner finished than a second knock came to the door, and it was the milkman. His milk cart had broken down right out in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children the milk so he could empty the wagon to repair it. And Muller had lots of stories like that to recount by the end of his life. Never once did he ask for anything, never once did he take on any debt, and never once did anyone go without food. Hudson Taylor, last one. 
Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. It's now OMF. That organization has been responsible for hundreds of missionaries being sent to China, hundreds of churches established and schools built and thousands of people fed down through the years. Moved by the thought of millions of people lost and without hope, Hudson Taylor set out to bring the gospel to China. In 1853, at the age of 21, he set out on his first voyage, not knowing what he would meet there, not knowing how he would survive and how his needs would be met, just trusting God. And the difficulty set in right at the beginning. The journey took six months, and twice the ship was nearly destroyed. First time by gales, they came within two boats' length of being smashed on rocks just off the coast of Wales. The second time it was worse, they were becalmed just north of New Guinea with a strong current pulling them towards a reef. And they tried everything, a boat was put out and the men were rowing, but they still couldn't turn the ship away from the reef. There were four Christians on board and Hudson Taylor suggested that they should pray so they each went to their cabins and after a short time Hudson Taylor felt sure that God had answered his prayers and he went up on deck and he told the first officer to lower some of the sails. He said, I've asked God to send wind and it will come immediately. We're near to the reef so we have no time to lose. We don't want to be blown onto the reef. The first officer laughed at him but even as he was speaking the sails started to flap in the breeze and before long they were sailing away to safety at a steady six knots. Again, read his biography and you'll see there are lots of stories of faith and answered prayer and great things achieved for God. Men of faith, Billy Bray, George Muller, Hudson Taylor, Paul, Peter, Men who in faith attempted great things for God and as a result they saw God do great things. Do stories like that leave you feeling a wee bit, oh, I wish I had faith like that. Or maybe you're thinking, well, that, that, that's amazing. I'd love to meet somebody like that, but no, not me. I could never. Do they leave you feeling a bit... My faith isn't up to much. I don't have that kind of faith. I never could. You do have faith, you know. You wouldn't be saved if you didn't have faith. It's by God's grace that you are saved through faith. It's those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who are saved. And that's what, what faith is. It's believing. It's believing what Jesus said and living like you do. And if you're saved, then you do have faith. You have believed what Jesus has said and you've acted on it. But did you notice what Peter said? The bit where he says this is for all Christians everywhere. Remember how he put it because he wanted to set the tone for the whole of his letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To everyone who has been given the same kind of faith we have. Now, do you know what that means? 
it means that that faith that you have is exactly the same kind of faith as Peter had. It's the same kind of faith as Paul had. It's the same kind of faith that Billy Bray and George Muller and Hudson Taylor had. There is no essential difference between their faith and yours. And so for the rest of our time now, I want you to think with me a little bit about what that means. But before we go anywhere, first you need to remember that the faith you have has been given to you. To those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. You see that? Now, Peter doesn't mean that we all believe the same things, although yeah, as Christians we do, we fundamentally believe the same things. And he doesn't mean that you have been given faith because Jesus lived a righteous life on your behalf. Actually, that is true as well in a roundabout way, but it's not what Peter is saying here. What he is saying is that Jesus, who is God, deals righteously with everybody. So when he's handing out the faith, he treats everybody the same. We all get the same top quality product. There's no such thing as some Christians getting class A faith and you getting what's left over or some kind of factory reject. We all get the best. It all comes from Jesus. It all comes from God. Perfect, all powerful, nothing can stop me. God is where your faith comes from. And that means that what that faith of yours can do has absolutely nothing to do with how good you are at anything. Whatever faith can do, that faith that you have can do it. It can save you. It can take you all the way to heaven. That faith of yours can move mountains. It can bring you through the toughest trials. That chapter we read from Hebrews, Hebrews 11, all those things we read about that were done by faith. Your faith is capable of all those things. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. So you see, when you hear about men and women of faith, don't you go thinking to yourself, I wish I had faith like that. Don't go thinking, oh, not me, I could never... Don't go thinking, my faith isn't up to much. I don't have that kind of faith. I never could. No. Remember that God has given you the same kind of faith that every other Christian has. And then think of the potential. Think of the possibilities. Buzz Lightyear, infinity and beyond. Does that not excite you? 
And as we work our way through this letter, let that thought set the tone. When you hear the challenges that are going to come, don't be thinking, this is beyond me. And when you're shown the possibilities, don't be thinking, I could never reach those heights. Faith is, I've said, believing what God has said and living like you do. So whenever God's word challenges you, with faith, you can meet that challenge. And whenever God's word opens up possibilities, with faith, you can and you will realize those possibilities. And wherever God sends you, you are capable of going. Nothing can get in the way of the kind of faith you have, if you use it. The faith you have is the same kind as all the faith you've ever read about. It is of exactly the same nature. It's powerful and it's unstoppable. But there's big faith and there's little faith. Remember what Jesus said, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious. The faith is there. But when you're anxious, you're not putting it to much use. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You would nearly think, reading that, that even though their lives were in danger, out there on the lake, in the dark, raging storm, miles from the shore, rowing like mad and going nowhere, you would nearly think that Jesus expected them not to be afraid, wouldn't you? He'd expected them to be cool and calm, like he was. Well, he did. It is what Jesus expected. We would sympathize with them. We would make excuses for them. But Jesus didn't. That's what he expected. And because they were afraid, he said they had little faith. They had faith but they weren't making much use of it. Jesus said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Why are you worried that you have hundreds of children to feed and no money to buy the breakfast? You have the faith but you're not making much use of it. On the other hand, you remember that time the centurion came to ask for his servant to be healed and he said to Jesus, you don't need to go. My soldiers do what I tell them. I know you can just command it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and he turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He has faith. And he's putting it all to use. He's just taking me at my word, and he's acting like he does. That's big faith. And that's what I like to see, says Jesus. 
or that Gentile woman who came looking for a miracle, she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Again, just taking him at his word and not being put off and acting like she believed him. So, how is it with you? You have faith. Yeah. But what would Jesus say about you? Would he say you have big faith? Do you put that faith that you have to big use? Or would he say, oh, you of little faith, you don't use that faith very much. You've become weak in the use of that faith you have. You don't expect it to achieve very much. And you make excuses because it doesn't. You say things like, well, wouldn't anybody be afraid in those circumstances? You say things like, oh, I'm not worried. I'm just, just concerned, whatever that means. I don't know. You say, I could never do that. I, I don't have what it takes. You say, we, we can't. We can't afford to. We don't have the resources. You've got to be sensible. Jesus expects big faith, not excuses. Well, how do people of little faith become people of big faith then? That's what Peter's about to tell us. Remember I said he wanted to set the tone of this letter in his opening greeting? And you're going to have to come back next week to find out. But for now, here's what I want to say to you. Don't go settling for being just ordinary. That little faith you have has the potential to be big faith. You could be a Billy Bray or a George Muller or a Hudson Taylor or maybe even a believer of the standing of Paul or Peter. I don't mean that you'll do the same things they did. That was for them. But I do want you to think, who knows what God could do with me if I trusted him with big faith. You do have faith. You just have to use it big. You just have to take God at his word and live like you do. Just think of the possibilities. Think of the possibilities for you. Think of the possibilities for this church. Think what could be done for God's kingdom. Don't you want to be part of something big? Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we are indeed excited by the possibilities. When we read of what faith has done and what faith can do. And yet, Father, even as we're excited, we're thinking, oh, not me. Help us, our Father, to have big faith. And even in the everyday things in this week that's coming in, help us not to be anxious. Help us not to be fearful. Whatever you might bring our way, Help us to know that you are in the vessel with us and that you control the raging of the storms. Amen. <laughs>